0: Um, good morning. Welcome to, um, this is our fourth session in our study in apologetics. Um, we saw, uh, we've seen the past few weeks, we saw just kind of an introduction. Uh, then we talked about the existence of God. Uh, last week we saw, um, Andy tackle the problem of evil. Um, so if you haven't, if you haven't been here to hear those, go check them out on, um, on the website or on the podcast, if we can get them uploaded, something's wrong with the uploader. But anyway, um, they'll be there soon, uh, so you can go check those out. Um, this week, we're going to talk about one of the things that's probably the most important um, well, one of the most important things for a Christian um, when arguing about the faith or when discussing the faith. Because pretty much everything that, that we know about uh, our God, about uh, Jesus Christ, um, about the early church, about well, our faith um, is found in this book called the Bible and apart from its truth, uh, we really have absolutely no ground to stand on um, we We can 't do anything there 's no reason for us to believe anything if we don 't have this this holy word uh, that has been inspired by god um, and so today we 're going to be talking about why we as Christians believe that the Bible is true and why it is reliable um, historically. So here's kind of the outline that we're going to be going through. just want to give you kind of a layout of where we're headed. Uh, We'll talk first about where the Bible came from. Uh, Then we'll talk about whether or not Christians should use Scripture uh, in apologetics. Uh, Then we'll move on to uh, how we believe, or how we explain why we believe that the Bible is true. Um, We'll talk there about the historical credibility of Scripture, um, and then about Jesus' character um, and then, finally, we'll kind of end with uh, some quick rebuttals to common problems that people may throw at you about uh, the Bible, uh, and be thinking of questions that you might have about that sort of thing uh, as we go, and we might, if we have time, uh, take a look at a few of those too. Now, unfortunately, of course, this is a brief seminar, and we don't have a whole lot of time to examine everything in full at all, anywhere close to, so this is, uh, this is very much an introduction, And I hope that it will spur you on to go um, and learn more um, and seek out everything that you can to understand why we believe the Bible is true. Uh, And one of the biggest things here is I hope that uh, it will strengthen your faith uh, and that you will read your Bible with greater confidence that uh, it is indeed the Holy Word of God. So let's launch right in. Why do Christians believe um, that what the Bible says is true? What makes us think that it's a reliable thing? first, uh, we kind of have to start with where it came from. So where did the Bible come from? And the answer to that is, um, for us, the Bible came from God, uh, by the Holy Spirit, through men chosen by God to deliver the Word, to God's people, to mankind, really. Um, and as Christians, we believe that the Bible is basically God's letter to humanity. Um, it was, It's 66 books um, written by 40, we believe, divinely inspired writers over the span of something close to 2,000 years. Um, these writers come from all walks of life. There are kings like David, um, there are fishermen um, like Peter, and there are men who used to kill Christians for a living like Paul. Um, the sixty-six book of the Bible are often known as the canon of Scripture, and this has nothing to do with those big things that shoot cannonballs during wars, um, and everything to do with a, a Greek word, which looks an awful lot like this one, except the Greeks didn't know what in the world a C was. So um, it comes from canon, which means rule or standard, um, and so Basically, the idea, we call it the canon of Scripture because it is the rule, the standard by which Christians uh, understand their faith. Uh, It provides the rule and authority for our belief system. Um, And it's important for us to to realize that early Christians didn't decide which books to put in the canon. It wasn't like um, a modern day uh, guy who's publishing a collection of stuff and he goes and solicits manuscripts from all these writers and chooses the one he likes the best. Um, It was more like... Uh, a publisher looks and says, here are the best sellers by the state, the best authors that we know of. These guys are tried and true. Everybody already agrees that this is what's, what we should use, and they compile it that way. Um, and of course, they already agreed on what the Old Testament canon was. Um, by the time of Jesus, uh, the Old Testament was that the Pentateuch, the prophets, all that stuff was already solid. No one really kind of questioned that. Uh, so the early church said, yeah, the Old Testament, that's absolutely Scripture. And so they were just, you know, adding to the existing canon of Scripture uh, with what we call the New Testament. Um, and it's really pretty impressive uh, how quickly they came to um, agreement about what the canon was and how little argument happened about it. Now, you can go back and you can find there was argument. Uh, the book of Revelation, for instance, uh, the book of Jude, Second Peter, um, those three especially seem to present some trouble uh, for some people, and they questioned the veracity or whether or not they should be included in the canon. Um, but the first written document that we have that lists all 27 books of the New Testament um, as we know it um, was written written down by Athanasius uh, in 367 A.D. So uh, as early as, you know, 360s, we already have people saying this is the canon of Scripture. This is the New Testament um, and this is the Old Testament, and that's, and that's what we had. And there are several um, criteria for canonicity. Um, and what that means is, what did, they, what did the early church look at and say, uh, this has to be so, or else this isn't Scripture. Whenever they're, they're figuring out uh, which ones should be included. The first thing is apostolic origin. And basically the idea here is, uh, it had to either be written by an apostle or by a close associate of an apostle, about apostles, okay, about Christ. Um, It's based on the preaching and teaching of first-generation apostles or their close companions. Um, It also had universal acceptance within the Christian community. Um, So there are, you know, these gospels, you may have heard of the Gnostic gospels that have kind of popped up here and there, uh, even in modern times that have been published lately, um, those were around. A lot of the Gnostic Gospels were already in circulation at this time, um, and part of the reason why the early church actually had to say, no, 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 this is the canon, because they weren't, I mean, they didn't feel like there was really any need to, because everyone agreed on what Scripture was. Uh, the reason that they had to sit down and say, here is what is the canon of Scripture, uh, is because these Gnostic Gospels were trying to sneak in uh, the Gospel of Thomas, um, there's the, the Gospel of Mary, I believe. Other ones like that that, um, that were kind of sneak in. So it was, it had to be universally accepted by the body of, of Christ at the time. Um, also, it had to be in liturgical use, which basically uh, liturgy has to do with the church service. So it needed to be being used, read, uh, preached from, during a church service uh, in the early church. So... Nobody was reading it or using it. Obviously, they're not going to include it in the canon of Scripture. Um, And it needed to have a consistent message. And what that means is if one letter that someone wrote disagreed with everything else that all other Scripture contained, then it wasn't Scripture. Because as Christians, we believe that our God is not a God of confusion, and He's not going to give us... um, two pieces of his word which have conflicting information. Um, and so it had to be consistent in its message and go along with other accepted Christian writings. The biggest thing here to remember, um, the New Testament canon was, had to be divinely inspired. So if, if you're reading it and it's not glorifying God, it's not pointing back to him, it wasn't Scripture. Um, any questions about the canon before we move on? Okay, cool. Part two, we'll move on to the next part. How do Christians view the use of Scripture in Christian apologetics? Okay, for a Christian, um, the Bible is the ultimate authority for us. The Word of God is our authority. Uh, We don't rely on our reason, um, but on God's revelation of himself through Scripture and through Christ, um. And we have to accept this revelation on faith, in a, lot, in a sense. We have to believe that, uh, that there is a God who, who has given us his word. Um, faith is absolutely essential here. Can't uh, dismiss that. But we don't put our faith in the Bible, okay? That's an important thing to remember, too. Uh, a lot of people are holding up a book as the thing they have faith in, as if that can save them. No. No. Um, the Bible is not God. Um, we put our faith in the author of the Bible and the main character of the Bible, um, our Savior. We believe the Bible is true because it is God's word to us, right? So it's the ultimate standard for all of truth for Christians. Um, capital T, truth. Uh, every other worldview, philosophy, uh, reason, presumption, everything has to be measured against the, the standard Of Scripture for us. That is the ultimate judge because it is God's Word. Unfortunately, um, non Christians don't recognize the authority of Scripture. Uh, Duh. Why would they? Um, They're far from neutral in their attitude about Scripture, and we shouldn't expect them to be that way. Okay? Um, Non Christians actively oppose, they hate. The Word of God. The Word of God tells us this in Romans 8. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Romans 1. God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature can be clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. But mankind has neither glorified Him as God nor given thanks to Him because their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. John 3. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. A non-Christian hates the word because it shines light on his, on his darkened heart. And we don't like it when people find out that we're sinners. Uh, we're not very fond of people discovering our sin. Um, and so we shouldn't ever expect a non-Christian to think that the scripture is worth their time and attention. Okay, part of our our job as apologist um, is to help um, encourage them to read the scripture. That, um, that's a really great place to start, and we'll find that out in just a minute. Um, but those two things, we, we see scripture as the standard. Um, the non-Christian says that's just a book of fairy tales. It doesn't matter. We should still use scripture. Uh, as part of our apologetics, um, because it's our job to present the consistent truth of the Christian worldview. And part a huge part of the Christian worldview is Scripture. You can't explain Christianity apart from the Bible. Um, it's natural for us, then, to open up Scripture and talk about it, explain why we believe what we believe. Um, and there's also, Scripture has its own arguments within it um, that talk about why it's valid. Um, It it validates itself, which sounds like, you know, oh, that doesn't work in logic. Okay, whatever. Um, So there are kind of three main reasons that I think we should use uh, Scripture in our discussions with non-Christians. Now, the first one, using Scripture challenges the postmodern idea that truth is relative. In our world today, this philosophy has sprung up, and everybody loves to just say, well, that's right for you, but it's not right for me. Um, truth is relative man I don't, I don't want don't push your ideals on me I live by my own standard I'm my own judge okay don't judge me but uh, the scripture says a very different thing um, and so it challenges the idea that our truth narrative that we find in scripture doesn't apply to our non-christian friend it calls them to an absolute truth and that's, that's an essential thing for us to do. We talked about with the existence of God that the moral argument is a huge part of that because where do you get morality without the existence of, of a God? There has to be some absolute truth, some objective moral law uh, that we have to obey. So that's a huge part. Number two, Scripture is spiritually powerful. God uh, tells us in Isaiah 55, My word goes out from my mouth. And it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for for which I sent it. Uh, In Hebrews 4, uh, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God has given us his word. Um, It's his word. It has power. Um, We would be... Foolish not to apply the power that God has given us um, in our conversations with unbelievers. Uh, you know, you've probably heard stories about people who are, you know, lost and whatever, and they opened up their Gideon Bible in the hotel room and 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 found, found Jesus that way. Um, I think there's something to be said for the power of Scripture speaking for itself. Um, and so sometimes opening up the Bible with an unbeliever can be a powerful thing to do in and, uh, and speaking the words of truth. Uh, number three, Scripture contains many places uh, where it argues for the validity of its own claims. So it argues for its own validity. Um, and this helps to show non-Christians that we're not expected to just accept this on blind faith. Um, it's not like we just go, ah, I think I'll pick Christianity. That seems like a good thing to believe in. Um, it's on the basis of ample evidence. Okay? We, we have ample evidence that Christianity is true. Uh, it, Christianity presents to us a coherent worldview that makes sense of everything. Okay, so many philosophies fall short of being able to explain all of life. They don't—they don't know what to do with the afterlife. They don't know what to do with evil. They don't know what to do with a moral law. They can't make sense of it. But Christianity is a full worldview. It makes sense of everything. It's a consistent philosophy. Okay. Any questions about any of that? Following along on my handout here, Um, Part Three, and this is um, this is kind of really getting into the meat of it. Uh, As Christian apologists, how do we explain why we believe that the Bible is true? I love Vodi Bachum; he's one of my favorite uh, preachers and teachers. Uh, He has a wonderful sermon. You can go and you can find it on um, SermonAudio.com. In fact. There's a lot of really good stuff on the reliability of Scripture, which is on the back of your handout if you look. Uh, there's a whole list of stuff that you can go look up, but that's later. Um, Bode Bacham says this about why the, he believes that the Bible is true. He says, The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other ey- eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim to be divine rather than human in origin. Um, and he uses Second uh, Peter as kind of the, the, the launching pad for that idea. Um, and I'm not going to go through each part of it and expound on it necessarily. I'm going to kind of use that as a, a springboard uh, for the three main arguments that I want to talk about, um, about the reliability and credibility of Scripture. Uh, the first one, the New Testament documents are historically reliable and credible. Number two, Jesus' character is shown as trustworthy in the Scripture. And number three, Jesus claims that the Old and New Testament books or the Word of God. Okay, so based on those three propositions, if we accept that the, the Bible is true, then we see a picture of Jesus. If we accept that he existed and he was real and he was authoritative, then we see how he views Scripture, and we can go from there and say, okay, Scripture is absolutely reliable. So um, the first thing here, the New Testament. um, This is just about the reliability of Scripture. Um, The New Testament record agrees perfectly with what we know of history elsewhere. So the first thing is, um, it doesn't disagree with with other history. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read um, Josephus, um, which speaks about some of the events of the early church. Uh, other early church fathers who reference um, writers who had recorded events. Um, It's really silly any scholar who tries to say that Jesus didn't exist because there's so much ample evidence that he did um, and that the resurrection really happened. Um, It's one of those things where they they try really hard because it would be really convenient if we could get rid of him for them in their worldview. Um, Anyway, it agrees with history. The names of emperors, governors, places, events, All these things line up with what we know of history. Um, The New Testament also reads as a historically reliable document. What do I mean by that? Um, You see some of the authors in the New Testament depicting themselves in bad light. Um, You see uh, the sins of people, the mistakes, the, um, (laughs) the falling shorts depicted clearly in Scripture. Um, It's not very convenient for people writing a book that's going to be a religion book uh, and showing their people as as doing a lot of really, really foolish things, right? You can just think back to to Abraham and Isaac and the big mistakes they made. Um, It's not, it doesn't work. (laughs) It wouldn't be very wise to do that. Uh, An historical account, however, would reflect people, warts and all, uh, and show who they really were. It also points to events like the crucifixion, which would really be inconvenient for someone who's seeking to say, hey, this guy was God and came to earth, and then we killed him. Um, okay, that <laughs> sounds like a great thing. It also, um, there are odd bits of details, um, like where people were standing when something happened, uh, the way the weather was on a certain day, the way the grass was on a certain day. Uh, you can look that up. It's in John 6. Um, Anyway, all these other things that point to these being eyewitness accounts. It wasn't like somebody was just sitting there like, hmm, and then this guy named Jesus did this. No, there's too much detail. There's too much um, solid eyewitness account information for us. And then thirdly, the New Testament has eyewitnesses of events it describes who were still alive when the scholars know that the writings of these apostles were existing. So there were people who were still alive when there were early church fathers alive. Okay? So there are people who saw the resurrection who were still around when people were trying to debate about whether or not the resurrection happened. Okay? So there are eyewitnesses who could have easily said, No, that wasn't real. These guys are making that up. I was there. No one, we don't have any record of anyone saying that. And then, this is one of my favorite things, the New Testament has far more in earlier manuscripts than any other ancient text. And when I say far more, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Um, for instance, uh, Homer's Iliad um, is taught in schools a lot. It was written around 850 BC, 850. Um, the earliest copy we have that we can put our hands on uh, happened around A.D. 900. That's nearly 2,000 years' span between when it was written and the earliest one we can hold. We have about 600 copies that exist, you know, ancient copies as we call them. Um, we do have a reference of it um, from Herodotus about 400 B.C. So, okay, so we, we know it existed at least that far back. How about uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars? Um, Historians today use Caesar's record of the Gallic Wars as history text. They say, based on what he wrote down, we know how the war happened. It was written around 50 B.C., the earliest copy we have that we can put our hands on, 850 A.D. That's 900 years separated from when Caesar was writing it to when we have it. And historians have no problem saying, "Yeah, this is exactly this is exactly what happened." How many copies of the Gallic Wars do we have? Ten. Aristotle's Poetics. I teach this uh, at school. It was written around 330 BC. The earliest copy we have, AD 1100, 1500 years. How many copies? Less than five. The New Testament was written and finished around 100 A.D., the earliest copy we have, A.D. 120. How many copies? Over (laughs) 6,000. Add to that the number of historians, early church leaders who quoted, referenced uh, the scriptures prior to 400 A.D. It's impossible for us to deny that amount of attestation. There is so much saying that this is the writings of the time. I don't see how you can get past it. Alright, moving on. If the Bible is true, then we would expect three characteristics to be true about it. Uh, It would have a coherent message, unity of its message. All of its parts contribute to a clearly defined point. What's the point of this? Um, And that's the easy answer. It's Jesus. Um, Number two, it would be internally consistent. It wouldn't contradict itself. Uh, Number three, it would be externally consistent. In other words, it would be historically accurate. It wouldn't disagree with what we know of the past. Um, And we're kind of going to work through these three um, really quickly um, just to kind of expound on them. Unity of message, first off here. Um, uh, Those are on your sheet. I won't write them down. So despite the fact um, that the Bible was written by 40 guys over the period of 2,000 years, there's not a single place where one biblical author disagrees with another one. And I know, I know, I know. But yes, there is. All of the Gospels disagree about everything. (sighs) We'll deal with that in just a minute, okay? No, 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 no. There are complementary accounts of things, um, but the Bible is consistent with itself. Uh, Some scholars even suggest that, um, you know, history and prophecy were changed later so that uh, Daniel's prophecies were actually written down after the things he prophesied came to happen uh, the problem with that, if you go back and if people were trying to go back and revise a prophecy, there'd be too many mistakes. Uh, we'd be left with problems in the in the text, and there'd be the problem of they'd have to go back and revise all of them. And how many did I say there were? Something like six thousand. So think of these monks who are trying to go and like revise history. Like, no, 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 oh, man, they got that wrong. We need to change it. So they have to go and find all the texts and change all of them without showing their pencil marks uh, and trust that you know. Okay, this is good now. We've corrected the scriptures. No, sorry. The Bible doesn't disagree. Um, the Bible is united in its teaching its own authority. Um, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't cower from the fact that it is the authoritative word of God. Uh, Moses, when he starts off writing Genesis, claims that um, he had divine authority in writing those things. Uh, and then John, when he's writing Revelation, says this is a revelation of the Lord. Um, so, our bookends of Scripture, and all the way through, all the writers claim divine authority. Um, It doesn't make much sense that all these guys over uh, 1,500 years would have claimed divine authority uh, and been consistent with each other throughout the whole thing. Um, You've also probably heard that kind of argument that uh, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Old Testament God of wrath and judgment, the New Testament God of love and peace. Um, just look at the Bible and you'll see that that's not really accurate. Um, I think of God's tender um, descriptions of his love for his people um, throughout the prophets. Uh, or just look at when Jesus talks about judgment uh, and the wrath of God being poured out on on those who reject him. It's really difficult to maintain that opinion that there are two different gods represented in Scripture. Um, and... There's a bunch of passages I can give you uh, if you want to go and see some of these examples for yourself. And then finally, and this is, you know, the most important thing, unity of message, it all points to one man, Jesus. Um, The same guy who the prophets foretold, the same guy who is pictured in Genesis as crushing the head of the serpent, um, the same one who is uh, foretold of by David's Psalms, Um, that same guy is the one who is the main character in the New Testament as well. Um, All of this, our Holy Scripture, is centered around um, His coming, uh, His death, burial, and resurrection. That's the unity of message. Everything points to it. Uh, And I love um, John Frame says it this way. An incredibly rich array of symbols, types, prophecies, events, and poetic depictions converge inevitably and powerfully on Jesus Christ, who, to most of the biblical writers, was only to come centuries later. So, from the beginning to the end, it is the story of Jesus. All right, number two here, internal consistency. If the Bible is reliable and true, then it should be consistent with itself. It shouldn't disagree. Um, and I'm just going to go through kind of just four basic um, example arguments and give you a framework uh, to answer certain problems, problems that people say Scripture has. Uh, so, the first one here. Um, for instance... In the Old Testament, populations of armies are sometimes estimated differently in different places, or uh, the distance from one town to another, or, you know, little things, num- numerics. That's a big thing. People love to point to numbers and say, look, that number is talking about this, and that number is talking about this. They're not the same. The Bible disagrees with itself. Okay. Scripture is always true. Scripture is not always precise. Ancient histories rarely use exact numbers. That's why they came up with terms like legion. Uh, 500 guys, close to, okay? Do you really think every single legion that ever walked the, the face of the earth had exactly 500 men in it? No, it, it. it's a rough idea. It was a bunch, okay? It was more than 20. And so when when populations of armies, I mean, do you really think that the guy who's watching the two armies clash was like, no, no. Like, that looked like about 40,000, you know? So, don't, don't try to say that Scripture is doing something it doesn't claim to do. Nowhere does it claim to give exact numbers on everything. All right, the second one. Uh, I mean, one passage in Exodus, it says that God parted the Red Sea, and another passage says it was a wind. Okay, answer to this, first and second causes do not exclude one another. Okay, God parted the Red Sea with a wind. It's not disagreeing. Complimentary. Um, how about the chronological order of Jesus' life is not the same in any two Gospels. Don't hold the Bible to something it doesn't claim. Only Luke c- claims something close to chronological um, order. Um, the rest of them don't ever say, and this, is, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. They don't claim it. We shouldn't hold them to that standard if they don't claim to be exhibiting it. Uh, it's not strange at all. Uh, in historical documents to find that they're not recording things exactly in the order that they happen. That's a very modern thing, that we have to get it in exact order. Oftentimes it was depicted in the order of importance rather than chronology. All right, and then the fourth one. Um, in one account of the resurrection, it says that the women who went to the tomb saw two angels. In another account, it says they only saw one. Different accounts do not imply error. Perhaps one woman saw two angels and another one saw one. I love this, you know, the idea, if we're sitting here and suddenly this group of men come running in and they're all wearing funny colored masks and stuff and they run over and they slap Carl in the face and take Wendy's purse and they take off out of here and we all go, uh, 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 what happened? And so the police come and they're taking the reports and they get all these different reports about what happened. And I say there were seven guys and, um, I don't know, somebody else says there were only five. Are, Are we contradicting each other? No. Andy didn't see the two guys who stayed at the door. I saw them because I'm up here. Okay, that's not that's not a disagreement. It's not a contradiction. It's a complementary account. Okay, and you could I mean you could literally spend weeks going through different contradictions that exist. Um, good book for this is Norm Geisler's uh, When Critics Ask. It uh, goes through a bunch of different problems with Scripture and just kind of goes says. Here's the thing you accuse me of, and here's the actual facts of it. There's another thing if you don't want to get a look at a book. Uh, there's a website called CARM, and it's Christians Apologetics Research Ministry run by this guy named Matt Slick. Uh, anyway, you can just go to CARM.org, and it just has like a library of questions. Uh, what about this? Well, I'll go see what that problem is, and, uh, and he resolves them all. So that's really good, too. External consistency. Uh, if it's become... It, became really popular, especially at the end of the 19th century, to kind of say, hey, look at the archaeology. This disproves that the Bible is true. Uh, We found Jericho, and the walls are still standing. No, they didn't. (laughs) Um, If you look at the commentaries from the early 19th century, uh, (laughs) some of the the commentators are actually scared of it. They're like, oh, this evidence is coming out, and we don't know how to deal with it. What if the Bible is proven untrue? But over the last hundred years or so, um, the Bible has been vindicated over and over and over again. Um, for good examples of this, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but uh, Josh McDowell has that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he has another one, More Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, Ready Defense. So those texts are great if you want to go and just learn about They did find Jericho, uh, they did find that the walls fell outward uh, and down. So, you know, different things like that show us. The records of Scripture line up with archaeology, line up with the histories that we've found. All right, uh, part two here, moving on. Jesus' character is shown to be trustworthy. So once we can establish and say the Bible is reliable as a historical text, and if it's reliable as a historical text, it presents this guy named Jesus. He's the main character of this book called the Bible, Um, and it presents him in a certain way. It presents him as a trustworthy person. Um, It presents him as the Son of God. It presents him as the Messiah. And so if this scripture is reliable, then we have to do something with this Jesus. We have to make sense of him. Um, The historically reliable Bible teaches a historically real Jesus. And it doesn't just say he was a good teacher. It goes all out and calls him the Messiah. It calls him the Son of God. Uh, Jesus himself um, makes prophecies that not only future events like the destruction of Jerusalem, but talks about himself and his own work. If he was a true prophet, we must take what he says seriously. Um, To kind of give a framework for this, um, mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis argues, and this is kind of where this first popped up, that Jesus was either a fraud, a crazy man, uh, or God himself. Uh, He makes this statement. And although I'm really tempted to use my class, Staple Lewis, Uh, British accent, I won't do that because it'll be more distracting than beneficial. So uh, I'll just read it regular. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So it's probably familiar to some of you. Jesus could only have been a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Um, And we can add a fourth to this, a legend, because uh, postmodern philosophy has decided that that's the best option. Like, let's just get rid of him altogether. Um, Some people say that, Jesus never existed, uh, that he was just a legend. Um, But there's way too much historical, archaeological evidence to support his existence that uh, those people are left flailing and just kind of praying that someday we'll figure out that he actually didn't exist. Silliness. If you're a liar, take that second claim, um, then why in the world would he die for it? Um, He could have easily just said, I was just kidding, stop now. And they would have been like, okay, cool. Go on, get out of here, stop preaching falseness. Okay. He had an ample opportunity to save himself, um, but he kept saying that he was the son of God. He kept saying, I am. If he were a lunatic, um, we have a lot of trouble because he was a really, really, really bright lunatic. Um, you see him arguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees Um, And he's not acting like a crazy man. He's speaking very fluently and rationally and clearly. Uh, He rebuts their arguments without really even uh, batting an eye. Um, Also, why would he handle the stress of being um, betrayed, persecuted, crucified, uh, and continue to show love for those um, who are doing those things? Um, You think of that, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. It does sound kind of crazy <laughs> that someone who is going through that would say it. Um, but at the same time, no. No lunatic would, would do that. Um, Jesus said he was Lord. He said he was God. The evidence supports that claim. It's easy. So from here, if we say that Scripture is true, it presents a, a, a true Jesus who really existed. His character is trustworthy. We can trust what he says. What does he say about Scripture? Did he consider the Bible to be authoritative. Well, there's kind of a problem. The Bible as it, as it exists now didn't exist when Jesus was walking the earth. Um, he had the Old Testament, uh, so we'll talk first about that. Um, Jesus did indeed treat the Old Testament as God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Uh, and just a few examples. Um, in John ten thirty four, Jesus tells us scripture cannot be broken. Um, We also see him end his arguments many times by quoting from Scripture. I think of uh, his temptation time in the desert uh, with with Satan himself. How does he respond to every one of Satan's temptations with the word, with with Old Testament passages? Um, In one case, he even argues from the tense of a verb. Um, You can find that in Matthew 22. And uh, this kind of points to us that he understood that every word of Scripture is authoritative, not just the themes or ideas, um, but every word of it is important. Um, Jesus assumes that um, what is prophesied in the Old Testament is, must be fulfilled. Um, and he thinks it's fulfilled in him most of the time. Um, and this is really evident in the book of Matthew. Um, and Jesus demands of others that they recognize that Scripture is being fulfilled in him. And then finally, um, Jesus establishes this pattern kind of uh, in Matthew where he interchanges the phrases Scripture says with God says. So it's, he's not just quoting a book but he, when he quotes scripture, he says, and God says, and then quotes it. So he realizes that scripture as he had it was the word of God, not just books written down. But Jesus also validates the New Testament for us. Um, he laid the foundation for it, so that makes sense. He taught that his teaching um, and the teaching of his uh, disciples was authoritative. Um, in John 7, he says, My teaching is not my own, it comes from him who sent me. Um, in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says, uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Uh, even the crowds who heard him teach noticed this aspect of his teaching. Uh, the first recorded reaction we have of the Sermon on the Mount uh, after he was finished teaching in Matthew 7, this says that the people were amazed because Jesus taught as one with authority. Where does authority come from? From God himself. Um, But he doesn't only give us reason to believe his words. uh, He gives us reason to believe the words of the apostles and the disciples who wrote down most of what we have and we call the New Testament. Um, He told them during times of persecution in Matthew 10, what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Here's Jesus saying you're going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write stuff down and to testify about what you've seen and heard. Um, Jesus told them in John fourteen twenty six that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that He has taught them. And I've often wondered about this: How do these apostles remember all this stuff? Were they taking notes the whole time? Maybe they were. I don't know. But um, you know, Luke says that he went through and 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 took basically did journalism and found out what people were saying. But uh, you know, Matthew, he was just hanging out and he writes down this gospel account of Jesus. How do you remember all of it? The Holy Spirit brought to remembrance all that he 'd been taught, um, and then Jesus tells the the apostles you 're going to receive the Holy Spirit, which will give you power that 's a huge part too um, and then New Testament writers clearly understood that authority had been given to them. Uh, for example, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14:36, "Did the Word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, then he himself is to be ignored." So Paul says, "Hey, since I'm authoritative, I've been given the Holy Spirit to write this. If somebody claims that they're speaking the Word of God, ask them to verify that what I'm saying is true. If they don't, then they're not speaking truth." Which is a bold claim for someone if they weren't actually inspired by the Holy Spirit, because, well, if the Holy Spirit really existed and you're making a claim like that, uh, you could be in some serious trouble. Um, and then we have Paul citing um, Luke uh, in First Timothy. We have Peter citing Paul um, in Second Peter. So apostles talked about each other's writings as well uh, and said, this is Scripture. In summary, if we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we must accept his view of Scripture. Um, and that would lead us to believe that the whole Bible is not just important, but it is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. All right, really quickly, um, we don't have a whole lot of time. In fact, we have pretty much no time, but really quickly. Um, the Bible is full of myths. Here are some problems with the Bible. These are not answers. These are launching pads for discussion. So if someone asks you these things, you can kind of start here. Bible is full of myths. Uh, it's a lot like the Greek gods. It's a lot like there's all these stories of floods throughout all these cultures. How do you know that it's not just another myth? Uh, The Bible doesn't have a mythical literary style. Uh, When you compare it to other ancient texts, uh, it presents things historically, in historical mode rather than a mythical mode. Um, And that's a literary jargon, but go look it up. It's great. Um, Big thing you can do here, challenge people to actually read the Bible. Number two, the Bible conflicts with science. This is one of the greatest challenges of the 20th century. Evolution, what the Bible says. The Bible describes things from what we call a phenomenological perspective. In other words, it talks about things as we see them, okay? The Bible doesn't claim to represent the scientific truth of everything, okay? We use terms like the sun rises, okay? The sun doesn't actually rise, right? We, but no one would say that that's scientifically wrong. We're not trying to be scientific when we say that. It's, that's what we see. We see the sun rise. We all know, okay, actually what's happening is the earth is turning, It's not that it's contradicting science. It's looking at the world in a different way. Also, the scientific method cannot examine a historical claim. You can't look at history and decide if it's true or not. Or it's not evidence. You can only use the scientific method on things that are repeatable and observable. Now, number three, the Bible is full of contradictions. Like what? Show me one, and we'll talk about it. Okay, that's where you always go. Challenge people. Read the Bible. Under close scrutiny, we'll see that passages are almost always complementary. They are always complementary. They're never contradictory. And then finally, the Bible is historically inaccurate. Like what? Show me an example. Where do you see uh, a problem with history and Scripture lining up? So finally, um, when you read your Bible, read it with confidence. Um, God has spoken to us. Uh, He's revealed himself in Scripture. We read the same Bible that's been handed down to us. Uh, by the apostles of Christ's church. It's okay if you don't know the answer to every question. Say, I'll go look it up. Don't assume that non-Christians are going to think the Bible is authoritative. They won't. Um, don't argue as if the Bible is not authoritative. There's no such thing as neutral ground. And Open the Bible with those that you're talking to. It has power to convert hearts. All right, thanks.